1: Hello and welcome to a new episode of New Books in Islamic Studies. I'm your host, Shere Ali Tareen. For each new episode, we choose an important new book in the field of Islamic studies, and we chat with its author. Adam Geiser's majestic new book, Shurat Legends, Ibadi Identities, Martyrdom, Asceticism, and the Making of an Early Islamic Community, published by the University of South Carolina Press in 2016, treats readers to a dazzling analysis of a wide range of Shorat and Harajite texts centered on the themes of martyrdom, asceticism and the body. Providing a rare and sympathetic window into this often misunderstood tradition, Kaiser presents a compelling and nuanced account of ways in which discursive concepts, constructs and narratives accumulate in a tradition. Over time. In our conversation, we talked about a number of the book's major themes, including the meaning and significance of the category of Shara, Shara and Ibadi poetry, and intra Harajite contestations over the boundaries of religious identity. This beautifully written book is sure to interest and spark conversations among a number of scholars, including scholars of Islam, asceticism, literature, and poetry. Here now is the conversation with Professor Adam Gratzer. Hello, Adam. How are you doing?
0: I'm well. How are you?
1: Uh, very good, Adam. Thank you so much uh, for your time and for speaking to us on new books in Islamic studies. Uh, such a fascinating book about a very important uh, topic that is uh, seldom discussed as extensively as you do in your uh, fascinating new book. Uh, so we'll have much opportunity to discuss it in detail. Uh, we have a tradition of new books in Islamic studies. That our first question is biographical. Uh, Adam, could you share briefly with our listeners uh, the story of how you became a scholar of Islam and then how you got to write this particular book?
0: Sure, Charlie, and thanks for having me. It's a, it's, it's a lot of fun to, to do this with you. Um, so I'll give you the short version of that uh, that answer there. Um, I decided that I wanted to pursue Arabic uh, my junior year at the College of William & Mary when I was actually living in Russia. I had done Russian for many, many years, and I decided, all right, I'll, I'll try something new. Uh, so when I got back my senior year at the College of William & Mary, I enrolled in Arabic, and it turns out that uh, Kristen Brustad of El-Kitab fame um, was our teacher. And Kristen is not only one of the best language teachers I think I've ever had, but she's one of the best teachers, period, hands down, that I've ever had. And I, I fell in love with Arabic. I decided that when I graduated, I wanted to go somewhere and practice more, so I ended up in Jerusalem for a couple of months. Um, and then from there, I combined my my love of Arabic with my love of comparative religion and and uh, enrolled at the University of Virginia. Um, that's the short version of sorry, sort of how I became a scholar of Islam. This book was my second book um, on sort of Harajites and Ibadis. Um, I got interested in Ibadism when I was looking for a dissertation topic and realized that I really couldn't write anything about the Harajites who I really wanted to write about. But I found all this cool stuff about the Ibadis um, and all these great texts. So I, I, sort of fell into that. Um, the first book was, you know, the dissertation and what I was trying to do was see how this very complicated apparatus, the imamate traditions that the bodies have, um, sort of see how that fit in with sort of other, you know, Muslim ideas of leadership and, but um, to kind of connect that to the wellsprings of Islam after that book, um, I found myself more and more interested in this idea of Shira and these people who call themselves shurat. And so I kind of pursued the third chapter of that first book and, and kind of fell into this one. That's kind of how this book came around. Yeah, that's the short version anyway.
1: Perfect. So Adam, let's begin with some key categories for listeners who may not be familiar with some of these terms. Uh, so... Who are the shura, the muhakkima and abadiya that you, that you write about? And what aspect of their thought and writings do you focus on in this particular book? Uh, and especially if, uh, as part of uh, you elaborating the kind of arguments that you develop in this book, if you could st- talk a bit about this conceptual theme that runs through the book, which is this idea of accumulated tradition that you develop quite, quite brilliantly uh, in this book. So just a couple of uh, combined questions, these terminologies and categories, and then the main argument that you pursue in this book.
0: Sure. Well, um, the, the first category there, shurat, uh, um, is is another name for the harajites. The harajites, of course, is a term that other people have used for these groups. They don't actually tend to use it themselves. And, and the, the very er, early uh, harajites, if you will, tended to call themselves shurat. Uh, it comes from a Quranic verse that talks about God exchanging with the believers their lives. Um, and in exchange, he gives them paradise. So uh, they seem to have taken this idea of exchangers, those who exchange, right, um, and pasted them on themselves. So uh, Shura is roughly referring to sort of that, that very early group of Harajites before they get... Um, before they turn into the different kind of subgroups of Kharijites maybe that we're a little bit more familiar with. Um, the Mohakima were the first group, according to the heresiographers, the first group of Kharijites that um, developed out of the, at the Battle of Sifin, and they get their name from the famous Kharijite slogan, la hukma illa lillah. So the Mohakima are those who say the la Hokim phrase, uh, and that's kind of how people refer to them. Uh, and they... They obviously have a kind of important role to play because they're, you know, the first group, right? So everybody looks back and and eulogizes them and and thinks about them as heroes, et cetera. And then finally, the last group, the Ibadiyah, um I think more and more people are kind of figuring out who they are. The Ibadis are maybe one of the remaining subgroups of the Harajites, in fact, the only remaining group today. That's That's kind of true, and it's also kind of not true. The Ibadis don't really like to see it themselves with the, the Harjites, and there's there's lots of good reasons why they don't want to do that, um, valid good reasons. Um, so by Ibadi and non sources sources, uh, by non ibadi sources, I mean people like Tabari, people like al baladri people like al mubarrad uh, Ibn Abrabdi. And in both of these sources, the, the Shurat and the Muhakkima appear in a certain kind of way. They appear kind of as glorious heroes, unafraid to die, you know, fighting a small group of people, fighting against larger groups of people, um, these sorts of things. So the project writ large was attempting to make some sense of why these groups of people appear as they do across both of these different kinds of literatures. And the argument goes something like this. Um, I kind of jumped on the late antiquity bandwagon, um, <laughs> which uh, there's quite a number of people, I guess, who are doing this of of late. Um, so... Uh, Late antique notions of martyrdom and asceticism seem to be very much alive in the writings on the on the Harajites and the Shurat. Uh, and this even bleeds into how the Ibadiyya tend to appropriate these stories. So, you know, um, what we might call hagiography, um, the way that the body of the martyr shows up. Um, all of these things often acted as focal points for community fashioning, for, for ideas of identity um, in the early period. Uh, and they seem to be doing something very similar for these early shurat, even as they appear in, in kind of hostile sources. Uh, and then later they seem to be doing something similar for the ibadia. So so this awareness, this awareness of the importance of late antiquity and the late antique function of martyrs and martyrdom and asceticism, um, I think this kind of helps us to make sense of the narratives as we have them now. They were an aspect of, I'll, I'll rip off a term that Tom Sizgrich used to use, um, they were an aspect of communal self-fashioning. So the project looked across a pretty good swath of history. You know, it starts kind of in late antiquity as the kind of backdrop to these early mohakkima and the shurat and then eventually to the Ibadiyya. So essentially what I found myself looking at was a a, a religious tradition that had accumulated Along the way, and had accumulated quite a bit of material and then gone in kind of different directions, so it's I had to make some sort of sense out of how I could talk about that or how I could even think about that um, and It occurred to me that that this religious tradition was accumulating in a way kind of like I was thinking actually about avalanches, believe it or not i don't know why I was thinking about avalanches, but I was but you know how like when an avalanche starts. It's it's it doesn't take a lot to start it. It's it's a couple of rocks or you know a little bit of snow or even a sound wave really can can start it going. And then once it goes though it it accumulates a lot of material. But that that original material if you will is mixed up with the other material that it's that it's gaining as it kind of slides down the mountain. And then at some point too the avalanche could be diverted down different paths. That's kind of how I saw this literature. You know it begins with a couple of stories late antiquity as the backdrop and then it as people preserve these stories and as they write them and as they pass them on to other kinds of people the avalanche is kind of sliding down the mountainside and going in different directions so one direction was the kind of non-ibadi material right and abu mehnaf in kufa is collecting a lot of this material and tabari is then picking up on it and baladri is picking up on it and then the other direction from the same material uh in some senses of the exact same material, uh, the abadis pick up on that. Um, and, And so that's kind of this accumulated tradition was my way of trying to sort of make sense of how all of this material kind of Shows up in everybody's sources, but it's slightly jumbled in a way.
1: So, Adam, could we uh, could you talk a bit more about an aspect that you have just uh, touched on, also, which is the late antiquity context? Uh, could you actually speak a bit about, you know, what was it about the late antiquity context that informed these Sufi conceptions of martyrdom, asceticism, and the body? Uh, how do you build that part of your argument?
0: Sure. Yeah. This, you know, this is a a body of material that. Peter Brown and his many students have developed over the past i don't know what twenty thirty years now it's um so it, it's it's a conversation that starts outside of Islamic studies, but I think now has firmly moved into uh, the Islamic studies realm. There's lots of people who are are doing this kind of thing in the late antique context. you know martyrs uh, sort of serve as a focal point of the community so their their narratives were something that people kind of coalesced around. Um, The trial and suffering of the martyr, uh, you know, changes their defeat into victory. Their bodies were considered sanctified. A lot of the bodies of martyrs, you know, Christian martyrs were used for relics, um, as were their tombs. They were buried into the walls of the city to protect the city from demons, right? So the the bodies themselves have this kind of power. Ascetics themselves, so after the initial period of martyrdom for, you know, for Christians, there's a period where... The empire begins, and there are no more martyrs. But ascetics are seen as kind of heirs to the martyr. That's it's actually uh, I think it's Peter Brown or somebody who has that quote. And so ascetics have a similar kind of idea. They're, they were dead, you know, before their deaths. Their asceticism gave them a kind of pre-death, as it will, were and therefore they were they were fearless or they were they were apathetic in the face of death. One of my favorite stories is this. Uh, Christian ascetic who gets shuttled back and forth across the river because different towns are trying to to steal him. Um, And he just kind of, he just kind of doesn't care. And the author of of the work praises him for not really, you know, (laughs) so, you know, they were, they were, they were dead before their death. Their bodies contain this power um, and their stories uh, were were focal points for community also, and even their their the sites of their their bodies. Like I think of uh, the big complex outside of Aleppo, Saint Simon the Stylite. If you've ever been, ever been up there in northern Syria, it's this huge complex that built up around this guy who basically sat on a pole for the remainder of his life—a sixty-foot pole—and he you know would prophesy and say all sorts of gloom and doom stuff and people would come from miles and miles around and even at a hotel there you could stay at apparently um so uh, you know martyrs and ascetics were were a big deal I'm, I'm of course more interested in the narrative aspect not the historical aspect per se we don't know how much of this is history right this is a this is something fairly common that you know, historians grapple with how much of this is real and how much this is not. I'm not really interested in all of that. I'm interested in how, how did late antiquity provide a kind of context for how Muslims, when they start writing about Harajites, in particular Shurat, when they start writing about their martyrs and ascetics, they pick up on this material. It's like if, if there were Harajites around today and they were going to make a Western you know, there would be certain kinds of things that they would use to make that Western, right? There would always be the scene of, like, the two guys in the middle of the deserted town facing off with guns, you know? Like, there, there's certain kind of narrative expectations that people have when they see a Western, right? Just like, I think, in late antiquity, there's certain kind of narrative expectations that people had when they when they talked about martyrs. And so the the Shurat, when they wrote their stories, picked up on these things. And then maybe the the last point here to give a very long answer to your very short question. Um, <laughs> uh, boundary themes was another thing that seems to come up when you're talking about martyrdom stories, and I wove it into the book because it, it seemed to be important at the time. You know, the, the stories create good and bad players as well as appropriate and inappropriate responses to the narratives. In other words, they bound a community. They imply who's inside of it and who's outside of it, and that's, that's very important, especially for early Shurat uh and later Harajite groups and the Ibadis. so i i, I kind of pulled that piece in
1: so let's talk talk about a category which uh, arguably is one of the central categories of this book the idea of shira. Uh how is this category and its meaning and significance reflected in sharat and ibadi uh, writings uh, and you especially spend a great time one of the hallmarks of this book is the analysis that you do of poetry uh, and, and, and poetic uh, uh, expressions. So how is this ideal of Shirat reflected in this poetry from the shurat and the Abadi writings? Can you give us a couple of examples?
0: Yeah, sure. Um, and this is one of the, the more fun parts of the book was um, sort of translating and getting to work with some of this poetry. It's bloody hard and I didn't do it alone. Ahmed Obeidata, who's now at Wake Forest and one of my very good friends, um, helped me tremendously with this poetry. And he and I, you know, whenever I get this thing called free time, I think we're going to publish some of this stuff separately. But um, yeah, so Shira is exchange, essentially, an um, exchange of one's life for paradise. And there's a chronic verse that that talks about this exchange as a kind of promise that God makes for people. So Shira is this exchange. And in essence, you, you sort of become already dead, like you've already given your life to God. Um, so you're already dead, Right. And so the the people who did this, and I, we have no idea how formal it was or informal or not, but the, the early Shura um, are famous for their their sort of lack of fear of death on the battlefield. They were these, you know, again, if there's any history in this, which there may or may not be, uh, they seem to have been kind of fearless on the battlefield. Their poetry certainly talks about how fearless they, they were or should have been. Um, it seems like they gave up a lot of their possessions, homes, wives, any attachments. There's stories about... Um, some of these guys, sort of seeking. There's one guy who actually seeks the permission of his mother before he goes off and fights with uh, one of these early martyrs called Abu Bilal. So there seems to be this, you know, giving up of family and attachments um, for the sake of fighting tyranny and justice. Um, we have big themes in the poetry, and in return for doing this, God promises them paradise. So you know, this is a literary ideal, right? And I guess the historicity is sort of beside the point, but it, it's, it sure makes for great poetry, um, and it shows up in poetry quite frequently, often in the context of fighting battles, um, and the Harajites lost an awful lot of them, so there's, there's a, lot of, <laughs> a lot of poetry about these. I, um, you asked for some examples, so I picked out sort of three of my, my favorites, maybe, um, only one of which actually talks about exchange, but the other two are just, just darn good poems. Um, so the the first one I picked out here is is uh, an early Karajite named Kab bin Amira. And he writes, talking about his hero, Abu Bilal, um, God, God has bought Shara, has exchanged or purchased Ibn Hudayr's soul, and he has embraced the paradise of Fardus with its many blessings. He was made happy by men with faces like the stars of the murk whose clouds have cleared. Forward they rode with Indian swords and with lances astride charging horses given to running. So he's talking here about... How God has exchanged uh, Abu Bilal's soul for paradise, and then it it goes pretty much right into you know the battle imagery, which is is fairly stock imagery for those of of us who know kind of you know Arabic poetry, right? Um, so that that's kind of a standard view of of shi'ra, but it also you know kind of fearlessness in 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 battle because you've already exchanged your life for you know for for paradise essentially. Um, You also get this, sometimes in the poetry, you get this sense of a kind of quasi-apathia, right? This early Christian concept of kind of taken from, in some senses, stoicism, you know, sort of not thinking too much about your fate, kind of accepting whatever fate kind of comes from you, even to the point of, you know, apathy, right? Um, So Abu Bilal, the guy that Kabin Amir is talking about, has a poem that's attributed to him, which I love. In fact, I wanted to title the book one of the lines. I'll tell you about that in a second. But um, the poem goes like this. What do we care if our souls go out? And he means, you know, go out of our bodies. What did you do with bodies and limbs anyway? We look forward to the gardens of paradise when our skulls lie in dust like rotted melons. It was actually that last line that I wanted to make the title of the book. (laughs) When, When our skulls lie in dust like rotted melons. Jim and the people at U, uh, USC Press wisely probably talked talk me out of that, although I still think it would have been a great title, but you know, I think, I think Ahmed and I maybe will t- entitle that book of poetry, "When our Skulls lie in dust like rotted melons," because it's just so so great. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, the, so in that poem, you get this sense of like, what do I need this body for?" right? Like, I, I'm going to heaven. When my skull's rotten in the dust like a melon, I'm, I'm, I'll be in heaven. Like, what do I care, right? And then the last one um, here that I picked out for you, Shirley, is um, actually Qatari bin al-Fuja'a's wife, Um-Hakim. Uh, Qatari was an Uzarkite, uh one of the last imams of the Azrakites, and his wife apparently embraced this idea of sort of dying before death or shirat, sort of the, the whole constellation of ideas that are kind of wrapped up into that concept. And she writes, it's a, it's a wonderful short poem, about three lines. She writes, I bear a head, I'm tired of bearing. I'm bored of oiling and washing it. Is there no young man who will relieve me of its weight? You get a sense of this sort of almost longing for death, which people have noted when they think about the Harajites. Um, And and I'm not so sure about the historicity of it, but as a literary device, it, it certainly fits very comfortably with the kind of things that late antique Christians and others were writing about when they were writing about asceticism or martyrdom. So I, I hope that gives maybe a sense oh, of this absolutely. Kind of shirah. Absolutely.
1: So one of the other uh, things that I found really uh, instructive and useful about this book is that it really goes into intra-ibadi and intra-Kharajite contestations also that you don't really hear much about and, uh, as often in scholarship and you do so quite extensively. Uh, so what were some of the major questions uh, and points of debate that were that were engaged in these uh, contestations, these intra-ibadi, intra-Kharajite contestations? And you also show through these uh, sort of, um, uh, you know, your ana- your analysis of these contestations that that oftentimes the way in which we might replicate the view of these groups as being uh, monolithic or flattened is actually quite different from from when you look at their internal contestations and you get a much more complicated picture than what you get from the heresographical sources. So could you could you talk a bit about these intra-Ibadi and intra-Harajite uh, contestations?
0: Well, I'm glad you picked up on that, Charlie, because I, I was really hoping that people who read this book would pick up on that. It's, it's something I've been thinking about more and more, Lately, you know, I don't think it's going to come as any great surprise that the hostile heresiographical sources that we have about the Harajites may not actually be telling us what Harajites were all about. Uh, You know, I don't think that's a big shock. But then after that, kind of what do you do with this material? Is there any way to try and sort of break through the kind of monolithic viewpoints that you get from the heresiographers and uh, you know there may be some of those ways and i think ibadi sources are a big important way to do that in some sense but you know the real question for the early courage i think one of the main questions that they dealt with is after we've decided that these people who are not with us are not fully muslims and and this does seem to be something that all of these groups kind of agreed on in a very vague way that people who are not with us are not fully muslims somehow or we're not going to consider them fully Muslim, or we're going to accuse them of that, right? After you've made that move, what exactly does it mean, right? So this is something that marks the Harjites, that they, they consider non harjites not to be full Muslims in some sense. But that really leaves a lot open to interpretation. And I don't really think that the early Harjites themselves had a really solid idea of what that implied or meant, they may, and this is one of the things I tried to show in the book. They may not really have meant it literally. That they may have meant it kind of as an accusation of, of you know, a sort of polemical tool that you use against your opponents. And Gerald Houting has this great book on idolatry where he he points out that you know accusations of idolatry were were kind of common actually among Jews and Christians, and they didn't they didn't mean that the person you're accusing of idolatry is actually worshiping idols. It's a kind of polemical move to say. You know, you're not acting like full Muslims. And this, this seems to be exactly what the early Karajites are doing with Ali, for example. And, and so, I, you know, I looked into the historical sources, and you actually get this wealth of ways that they're accusing Ali of doing the bad things that they're saying he's doing. Um, you know, you're sinning, you're, you're doing kufr, you're doing shirk. You know, there's, there's all sorts of just a myriad of ways that they're talking about what they, what they sort of think Ali is doing. You get to the heresiographical portrait, and it's quite flat. Uh, they accuse Ali of of kufr, and that's that. And by kufr, they mean absolute, hard, solid kufr. You're an unbeliever, and we're going to treat you accordingly, right? I don't think the early Kharijites really had a, a a real solid sense of what they meant. They knew that, you know, people were sinning, and that this was a bad thing. We probably shouldn't associate with these folks. But but what do we do then? Do we you know once you've made that move, you've got a range of options open to you. Do you completely isolate yourself from these folks and treat them as if they are in fact idol worshippers? That's one option. And the kind of most militant harjite groups, that's that's what they chose to do, if we believe what we read about them and on some level, the Azrakites and the Najdites and these kind of groups. But you know, the other option, if you're thinking of this as a kind of polemical tool, and you don't really mean that if I call you a catheter, it doesn't mean that I'm gonna like enslave your wife, you know, <laughs> which technically you could do if you're, if somebody is a Kafir and you're in the medieval period and you're fighting with them, the, the, the kind of quietest Harajites seems, seem not to have done that. They seem to have treated that more as a kind of, I don't know, kufr light, if you will. But the the point here is that, you know, these, this question of Takfir, which really marks the Harajites is, is a lot more complicated than I think. It appears in some of the sources, and it, and it seems to be something that the Kharijites disagreed over vociferously. They In fact, they spent a lot of time disagreeing over mm-hmm. it. The, one of the problems I, I think I see in some aspects of Western studies on the Kharijites is that, you know, there's this assumption that Kufr kind of means what the Azrakites said it meant, and there's not really this or not much really, and people who kind of sort of entertain that, well, maybe there's a different way to kind of look at these, some of, some of these things. That's, that's kind of what I was trying to get at, to sort of get underneath some of these assumptions about the Harajites.
1: Let, let us shift to the Abadis now, and, and, uh, towards the latter half of your book, you talk about their emergence and, um So what were some of the conditions and circumstances that led to the emergence of the Abadis and how did they go about appropriating, which is the term that I'm borrowing, that I'm appropriating from your writings. (laughs) uh, How did they appropriate and repackage this idea of Shirah, which is, of course, the constant theme that runs throughout the book?
0: The narrative of how the Abadis emerged that I subscribe to may be a little different from what some of my abadi friends would say. So there's, there's differences of opinion, scholarly opinion about where the Abadis came from. I tend to fall in the Wilkinson camp, John Wilkinson, who is one of the you know more important uh, scholars on early Abadism camp, and I, I guess you could call us revisionists of some sort. So, what I think, ha- what I and John think happened with the emergence of the Abadis is that they that you have these you know these sort of hardcore militants that appear in six eighty through six 68- eighty four like the Azraqites and then and, and the Najdites that split off from them. Um, and, and these guys have a pretty good idea of who they are uh, and what they want to accomplish um, in the early period. And th- so their their sort of hardcore nature gives them a sort of definition. But the rest of the early Shurat groups uh, don't seem to have much definition. And these are, you know, a lot of these folks are in Basra. There's a fair number in Kufa, but a lot of them are in Basra. Um, you know, they have, again, some sort of vague ideas about sort of uh, we're not going to consider the folks that are not with us to be full Muslims, but we're not going to completely condemn them. In fact, we might even intermarry with them. We might inherit from them. It might do all these things. But these groups don't really have a good sense of, of who they are necessarily as a separate group. They're just kind of these early quietist shurat, let's say. By the 720s, 730s, 740s, certain kind of tribal alliances seem to be coalescing in Basra that lead to an alignment with southern Arabic tribes, the Kinda and the Uz, with these quietist scholars. And they seem to be very much a group that is kind of the ulamaat they would meet in secret and all of these things. And it's probably this group that inherits and appropriates these earlier stories for their own kind of uses. So you have these scholarly circles in Basra who have... Imagine themselves as part of this community. As part of that imagining, they've they've got these bodies of stories, and they, they were probably you know, probably some of the first people that repackage them and you know write the poetry and all these kinds of things. As part of that, so you have the bodies emerging out of these scholarly circles in the seven twenties through the seven forties. They send missionaries all over the place, they're successful in North Africa. You have the great harjite revolt all across North Africa. This you know happens with quietist harjites. And as part of that, they, they inherit this idea of Shira. They inherit these stories about these early guys who, against overwhelming odds and in the face of death, go out and, and fight you know, for justice and you know apple pie in the American way. But a couple of things happen for the Abadis. They themselves try and establish polities, and eventually they're successful. Uh, they establish the Rustamid dynasty in North Africa, and they establish the first imamate or the second amendment, technically, in Oman in the late 700s. And uh, you know that the Omani one lasts for about a hundred years. The Rustamid dynasty lasts for two hundred plus years, and they do. It seems kind of use this idea of shura, especially the Omanis. The Omanis had these soldiers that they that they called Shurat, these kind of volunteer guys who would fight on behalf. The problem, of course, is that if you're if you're uh, an imam who's just established a a, a government, right? You don't want these kind of fearless revolutionaries running around. <laughs> it's the problem of revolutions, right? You, you know, the people who establish the revolution, once the revolution is established, are actually kind of dangerous people. And this is one reason why revolutionaries tend to murder each other after they get into power. You know, the Abbasid Revolution is no different. The Russian Revolution is no different. Anyway, so once the bodies come into power, they have this problem. And they have to repackage Shira a little bit. They have to kind of try and bring it under the purview of the state. And so you see, when I started looking at the Ibadi materials on shirat, there's this one letter that um, an imam writes to one of the imams in Oman, and he's saying, look, for every ten of these shirat soldiers, we should have an alim who, who guides them. So they're like the ulama are trying to sort of insinuate themselves as kind of control mechanisms over and above these guys. It didn't work. It seems like these, these soldiers eventually and the sort of tribal conflicts eventually kind of brought down the first imami. but but you do see the Omanis trying to 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 use a Weberian term they're trying to institutionalize this idea of shira and make it something that the state can then control and that that was kind of interesting to see also because i've always been fascinated with with revolutions and it it seems like that is something that revolutions try and do in and of themselves right the Iranian revolution, Russian revolution, what have you. So that's kind of how appropriation and repackaging comes. You have the stories that are, that are told, you know, for people to kind of rally around. But then at the same time, you've get, you get these guys trying to really kind of put a lid on things.
1: Let us return to this theme of boundaries that you talked about earlier also in one of the answers to the, the questions. And uh, there are two categories that you especially talk about in detail in relation to this idea of boundaries, uh, the categories of walaya and bara'a. Could you explain a bit what these two categories are for our listeners, and uh, how did the early muhakkima employ these concepts to negotiate and uh, sort of stipulate their boundaries of their identity in relation to other uh, groups of uh, Muslims or whom they consider to be Muslims or
0: non-Muslims? Yeah? Sure. So walaya and bara'a, you find these concepts even in a Quranic perspective because they seem to be... Um, kind of pre-Islamic concepts as well that, that you know, tribal groups used um, to mark out who they were affiliated with and who they were, uh, you know, split from or quit from or even and who they were excommunicating out from them. So, wilaya is roughly association, and it refers to the people that we affiliate with or the people that we are willing to associate ourselves with. Um, and bara'a is dissociation. It also has this idea of excommunication, right? So, if I'm not mistaken, I think when Abraham in the Quran finds out that his father is an idolater, he he declares himself buddy, right? Like he's quit, he's finished with him, he's done. Um, so these are these are old concepts. They're concepts that that we find non-Harajites using in the early period. Um, Twelve are Shia, if I'm not mistaken, still, and other kinds of Shia probably too. Um, Still have notions of ta'walaa and tabarraa that are written into. I think it's maybe the fu'adin, and again, these these negotiate kind of insiders and outsiders. So they were they were fairly common terms, actually. How the early Harjites used them beyond just the kind of you know bland usage of who we're associating with and who we're not associating with—it's hard to say. I've been translating this early piece of writing from a Harjite. That's one of that's one of the few actually pieces of writing that we have from them. And he's constantly declaring himself, right? Quit from X, Y, or Z. Um, so it seems to be a fairly common thing. Now, when the Abadis get, get hold of it, um, this is where I think it gets interesting up to the present period. There's nothing, you know, especially peculiar about this language in the early period, but at some point, it seems to have fallen out of fashion with most Muslims. You don't see, for example, Sunni folks a whole lot using this term walaya and bara'a. It, it just kind of, you know, it's one of these things that kind of becomes obsolete. But the Abadis continue to use it, and, and it becomes a very important set of categories for them, such that in the medieval period, even today, you can't really pick up any self-respecting Abadi legal work and not find at least a chapter or two or three or five on the topic of walaya and bara'a, right? so. Um, and let me give you, Shirley, a quick sense of, like, what kinds of questions would an Ibadi legal chapter on Walaya and Bara'a contain, right? So questions like, can I – like, what can I do in relation to uh, a sultan who's not Ibadi, right? Like, can I pray behind this guy? Can I pay my zakat to this guy? Can I serve in his army, like if I'm, if I'm not supposed to affiliate with this guy, if I'm barit from him officially, what sorts of interaction am I legally allowed to kind of have with that person? These, these would be, you know, like one of the many questions that would show up in a, in a chapter on wilayah and baraa. So they, like they, they establish affiliation for ibadis and they establish the responsibilities that ibadis have to one another. And they also establish what kinds of relations are permissible or non-permissible with people who are not within that in-group. Um, and this, this really becomes a kind of unique feature of Ibadism. Um, and they continue to use it to the, to the present. It's, it's rather fundamental when it comes to kind of Ibadi law and theology. And, and, uh, you know, I, I think that's kind of fascinating.
1: So as we're coming to the end of our, uh, Conversation, Adam. Could you tell our listeners uh, what's the next project? What? Uh, sure.
0: <laughs> you know, yeah. So I'm I'm um, writing an introduction to Islamic sectarianism, so-called. I, I know that's a problematic term, but that's the one that that freshmen seem to recognize. So um, it's supposed to be a book that you know has a chapter on the Kharijites, chapter on the Shia, chapter on the Murtazalites, chapter on the Murjiites. Um, and so I'm about two thirds of the way through that one. I'm hoping to finish that by the end of the year. And, uh, you know, if, if I've written it in a way that's responsible, hopefully, uh, it's contracted with Cambridge, so hopefully they'll, they'll in fact take it. And when I finish that, I, I I've got a couple of things I'm, I'm banging around with. I'm, i think it's about time we had an Ibadi reader or a Harjay reader. I don't know what that would look like given that they're, the sources and the harajites are pretty problematic. But if I can coax enough people into translating things for me, I may try and do that. Um, I may try and put together a book of this, this poetry that Ahmed and I collected. We've got quite a bit of it that, that didn't make it into the book, actually. Um, so that might be kind of fun. And then I've got this translation of this creed of Abu Fadl. It's, it's a great creed. I just There's so many questions around it, it may, it may have to be a kind of short shortish book. So those are the kind of the, the three projects I've got on the burner right now.
1: Sharath, uh, Legends about the Identities, martyrdom, asceticism, and the Making of an Early Islamic Community by Adam Gazer, published by the University of South Carolina Press in 2016. Thank you uh, so much, Adam, for uh, your time, for this conversation, and for such a fascinating book that I'm sure will be read widely and should be read widely uh, with such an incredible analysis and the kinds of sources that you examine. Uh, so thank you so much uh, for this uh, conversation in the book.
0: Hey, thanks, Charlie. Great talking to you.
1: This was my conversation with Professor Adam Geiser about his brilliant new book. I hope you enjoyed this conversation and that you will also join us next time for another fresh episode of New Books in Islamic Studies. Until then, this is your host, Sher Ali Tareen, signing off. Take care, stay well, and keep listening to new books in Islamic studies.